things are getting strange, we're starting to worry. This could be a case for... Robbie the Robot's waiting? We re-examine stretchy X-Files classic Squeeze. Now that 2020 is making up for lost time on the big screen, we look ahead to the cinematic treats this year still has in store. The boys are back in town, and they're as bad taste as ever. I'm Richard Edwards. I'm Tanavi Patel. I'm Dave Bradley. And there's all this plus Ridley Scott, movie stars telling it like it is, and COVID-19 versus Batman in Robbie the Robot's Waiting, the podcast where the truth is out there. Hi guys, how you doing? Hey Rich, hey Tan, how you doing? Good, thank you. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that's come out this week is probably the boys. I know, unfortunately, you guys haven't had a chance to see it yet. Um, We're saving it. We're saving it. It's going to be saving it all up. Well, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? It's um, not released all in one go. It's uh, there's only three, and then it's going to be weekly, right? Yeah, apparently this was because the showrunners wanted to do it that way. It wasn't Amazon's plan, but Eric Kripke, who did Supernatural, and the other guys on it really wanted to sort of spread it out so that the conversation wasn't finished after everyone had binged it. Right. See, I'm such a binger these days. I'm, I'm saving them all up. I want to watch them in a batch. But you, you've, you've begun, though. You've seen the first three. I've seen the first three, yeah, and it is The Boys. Uh, it's very much a continuation of what we've seen before um it's superheroes with added bad taste um i won't go too spoilery but homelander is i think he's evolving into one to one of the great super villains on screen i mean he wouldn't see himself as a super villain one of the plots in this is that he's very much pushing for super terrorists to be known as super villains rather than super terrorists because he think it's, it thinks it's better for the optics <laughs> um, well that's um, one of the things this week this time isn't it in season two that it's very much about optics and social media and and the visuals and the illusion that they're creating is it not well, there is a new member of the Seven this time called Stormfront, and she is actually based on a character from the comics. Um, she was a man in the comics. She's not now. In the comics, Stormfront was a Nazi. I'm not going to say any more about the Stormfront in this one, but behind this veneer of being a sort of social media fan who's sort of constantly tweeting and Facebooking to her followers, there is a dark side there. And, and I think basically this is a, a battle within the seven to be the worst superhero of them all. I mean, they all do just terrible, terrible things. I thought the boys season one was fantastic. And I, and Homelander, as you say, just becomes one of the most hateful, but magnetic characters uh, of, of that show. The trailer for season two focused very heavily on the, uh, on Homelander. And so I, I was assuming that he, he was just going to be carry on his, his, what is essentially a kind of fascist, cruel take on someone with powers, right? Yeah, that's totally it. It's basically Superman who doesn't have this sort of sense of decency, who knows that he's stronger than everybody else, that he can fly, that he can fry people with his eyes, that he can do all this stuff. And so why should he be subservient to humans? Why should he help them? Because he thinks he's better than them. And, you know, it's quite a logical way to take a story, but I mean, it's quite a dark angle as well. And it's not really (laughs) what you see in um, Marvel movies in quite the same way. Are we going to pick up where it it left off not sort of immediately um there has been some time pass there are big things sort of happening sort of within superhero world and with Fort, the company who kind of own all the superheroes so yeah it, it sort of after three episodes it's set up really really well um and you know i'm actually really glad that they've stretched it out a little bit as much as i want to see episode four i think this whole thing about stretching it out will make it more of an event because there is so much to talk about in this show <laughs> I, and I i agree with that kind of way of watching but i think it's a clever move by amazon so after all those years of, sort of yeah netflix have been a genius sort of 
jumping it all out at the same time. Now we're saying that the old way was the best, but actually they've done both at the same time by sort of doing <laughs> three episodes at the beginning. I, to be honest, I don't know what I prefer. I'd love being able to watch the next episode straight away, but I like this being stretched out. It's all good. So I finally have rediscovered um, just some old movies on Netflix and um, Geostorm crossed my path. And I don't know if you guys know that one. It was I've, I've seen Geostorm. It's not even old. It's like 2017. Geostorm, with, uh, okay, I haven't seen it. So it's a Gerard Butler action sci-fi movie in sort of the best sense. They, you know, it's a bit futuristic. They go into space. So it's about Gerard Butler's character, who's a scientist who's fallen into disrepute after creating a huge satellite system that negates massive storms, which have come about, I think, basically because of climate change and it's quite funny because it starts off going in the year 2019 when all these <laughs> storms as if it's so funny the future the future um and so obviously something goes wrong with the space station and the satellites and he has to go up into space to fix it and lots of action and sabotage ensues and it's just a good old fast-paced thriller really it's uh, got decent action, decent visuals, and nothing to sort of you know write home about. But I enjoyed it. It's from the same school of preposterous science as the core, I think. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have been watching Dark on Netflix. Um, mm. Now uh, I missed it when it first came out. It's there's three seasons of it, and it ended uh, this year. So I know that uh, lots of people have watched the final season. So I was catching up with that. Um, it appeals to the two sides of of, uh, of my genre loves, really, as well as being a science fiction show. It's also a crime drama, really. And it's it's almost as if you imagine Stranger Things, but made by uh, the makers of The Bridge or The Killing. It's got that kind of Northern European noir, uh, gloomy uh, crime kind of sense about it. But it's, uh, it's, it's German. It's set in a Northern German town. Uh, where the major employer is a, um, a, a nuclear power plant, uh, and um, try not to give too spoil- many spoilers away here, but it's definitely a time travel show. There's, that becomes apparent very, very early on, and mysterious happenings uh, take place. And there's a much like that kind of Scandi noir drama that, that I love. Um, there's a you know there's the the chief of police who's uh, who's getting too close to the to the case, and there's a families that have the kind of feuds going back and. Uh, and it's there's a sort of forest on the edge of town and it's all very mysterious and kids go missing and it feels very much like a kind of crime drama set up to start with but underneath the power plant there's a um a portal that sends people back in time and there are connections between the the mystery that's happening now and one several decades before and before that it is not that kind of upbeat american back to the future stranger things kind of view of the 80s when they go back in time it's, it's much more chilling than that it's it, it feels like a, uh in the way that that kind of nordic noir does it ha- feels almost like it's a horror there's there are kind of moments of kind of horror a- around it but but it's great it's well, well worth watching you can binge it all on, on netflix right now and there's a couple of other films i think i ought to mention um i've seen the new mutants so oh, you guys yeah. can- so you guys don't have to, basically. Um, <laughs> thanks, thanks for taking that one for the team. <laughs> I, mean, I used to love the X Men movies. I mean, X Men Two was particularly good, and First Class was really good fun. And you know, Logan, the last um, Wolverine movie, was fantastic. But X Men Apocalypse, that was pretty poor. X Men Dark Phoenix was worse, and I don't know if New Mutants <gasps> is worse again. But it's just 
pretty pointless. It's trying to be this sort of dark movie about these sort of mutant kids who are in this sort of hospital. Basically, the, the usual sort of thing about experiments being done on them. Um, but there's just no real story to it. It's just a bit morose. And I just came out of it and thought, well, that's a waste of an hour and a half. The most interesting thing about it, I think, is that it's taken so long to make it into cinemas because it was filmed in about 2017 and then it, it got held yeah. up because they wanted to do reshoots, which I believe never actually happened. And then obviously Disney bought Fox, so that held it up again. And actually, I thought it would never get into cinemas at one point. And yeah. when it did, I thought, well, I probably ought to see this. But <laughs> now I think that's a full stop under the X-Men movies. Marvel Studios, they'll be doing the next X-Men film, I suspect. So it'll be part of that universe mm. and much more worth watching. But I'm going to end up on a high because I've also seen Bill and Ted uh, face the music. Yay. Um, Is it excellent? I'd say it's neither excellent nor bogus. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely more towards the excellent side. I mean, it, it's good. It's surprisingly maudlin, I think, you know, because they're certainly the first one. It's just a joyous film. And this is sort of about two guys who are in middle age and life hasn't turned out as they expected. They haven't written the song that they've always thought they were destined to, and their wives are getting a little bit nonplussed. I think maybe because of the fact they're more interested in hanging out with each other than anyone else. You know, they are just a pair. But actually, it's a really nice film. You know, it, the last act is great. You sort of walk out of it just feeling good. They're still great characters, um, and, you know, their daughters are fantastic. You know, they're, they're very Bill and Teddy, but they're not not sort of stupid in the way that Bill and Ted are. You know, they're actually pretty bright, but with Bill and Tedisms, it's not essential. It didn't have to be made, but the fact that it is there certainly doesn't damage anything that was there before, and it's just nice to see them again. Yeah, yeah, I'm quite excited just to be back in that world for a little bit, even if it's you know not yeah. a masterpiece. I'm just quite looking forward to just kind of luxuriating in it. 2020 hasn't quite been the year we've been hoping for at the cinema. There's been very little out since March, uh, certainly in terms of big blockbusters. Uh, we're going to have to blame that annoying germ for that. But since Tenet, cinemas are properly open. We are getting to see new movies. Uh, so we're going to have a quick look at what's coming this way between now and the end of the year. A good place to start usually when it comes to blockbusters these days is Marvel. And there is a Marvel movie out before the end of the year, Black Widow. Question for you. When Black Widow comes out at the end of October, it'll be 486 days since the last MCU release, which was Spider-Man Far From Home. Mm. Now, how many Marvel films were out in the previous 486 days? <laughs> uh, Five? Uh, uh, oh, that's a good guess. Three. Was that right? Yeah, was that it was right? five. Yeah, Tanner was oh right. God. So you had Avengers Infinity prize? War, <laughs> Avengers Infinity War, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, and Spider-Man Far From Home. And if you added an extra two weeks, you'd also have had Black Panther. Oh, <laughs> so, I mean, okay, we were spoiled at that point, but we've just been deprived of Marvel. So this is kind of a big thing. And also, Black Widow, how has it taken so long how for us actually to get her fronting her own movie? She's, she's dead in the sort of main continuity. I'm yeah, sure there are many factors towards that um, that Marvel will never disclose. It's overdue though, isn't it? It's overdue. It's overdue. It's such yeah. a shame. She, I mean, um, Black Widow's been a character in the Marvel Universe since Iron Man 2, so she's been way back. And yeah, uh, uh, the fact that she died in um, in the finale of, the, uh, uh, of that phase, uh, it, it means that they've had to go back in time for this. Um, I'm all right with that. I can, I can deal with, with movies being out of sequence. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I think it's set after Civil War. So this is her going back to Russia, you know, looking back at her Soviet past. Um, we get to see the 
Russian version of Captain America, played by David Harbour uh, from Stranger Things. He's playing the Red Guardian. You've got Florence Pugh as one of Natasha Romanoff's sisters yeah. uh, from The Red Room, and also Rachel Weisz is another. So it's a really good cast. I mean, I, I'm i in a way glad that they waited because I think when I, you know, when we were first introduced to Black Widow, it didn't really feel that of all the characters that she was the one that I was, you know, more intrigued about or really wanted to see a full film of. But as things progressed and you learn more about her, I warmed to her as a character. So now that they've she got the, the trailer out there, I'm actually, and, and obviously it's Marvel, so it's a great trailer, um, I'm actually really in like excited for it. So I think if they'd maybe done it earlier, I'm not sure if I would have been as fussed. And in a way, they've kind of lucked out because of the fact that there haven't, there isn't much else really competing there. I feel like more people, even if they weren't particularly fussed about Black Widow, will give it a give it a shot. Yeah, definitely. I think there'll there'll be a hunger for the Marvel universe, and 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 uh, and so this will this will draw crowds back. Uh, it, it's been a long time coming. And also, even though it is set sort of out of continuity, I'm sure it's going to set something up for Phase 4 and the other movies because it's heavily rumoured that Iron Man is going to be making his final appearance in this. What? Is, sure. what another appearance? But this will be the last. The rumour is that Robbie da- Robert Downey Jr. is in it. Um, oh, wow. Oh, my Lord. Well, I, uh, the fact that um, Spider-Man Far From Home was basically an Iron Man film um, was uh, yeah. was uh, striking. Iron Man film without Iron Man genius. Oh, it's it? an absolute genius. <laughs> um, uh, and this is going to be <laughs> oh Marvel. Will they will they turn every film into an Iron Man film? It, it makes sense, right? Like they're really if they can get RDJ in it, they want him in it. It sounds like, um, but it makes us all curious, right? We all prick up our ears when we hear that there's Easter eggs are almost as important as the core of the. Well, that's it. Oh, the, the story. So Marvel haven't made a bad movie in their MCU. Continue, have they? I mean, there have been shades of. of oh, of I don't know. Goodness. I think Thor: The Dark World comes pretty close. I was, just about, <laughs> I was just about to say that, but even even so, I would still absolutely watch Thor: Dark World again over Justice League or well, half of the. DC movies. We talked a, a fair bit about uh, Wonder Woman 1984 on episode four, so I'm going to sort of skirt over that a little bit. What movies are really exciting you sort of coming up? So I was happy to see that Free Guy, um, oh, yeah. the new Ryan Reynolds movie, is going to be out soon because I, I'd almost I'd forgotten about it, and I went to the panel at New York Comic Con, which was almost a year ago now where Ryan Reynolds and the cast were there talking about it and they showed the trailer at that time I think probably a bit more than is out in the trailer now and it it is essentially if you like Ryan Reynolds and that kind of charm it's you know in the sort of Deadpool antics that come with him being the slightly crazy protagonist that you know doesn't mind finding the jokes and people getting killed in various ways, then it is probably a movie for you. Although he didn't say that much about it as he normally tends to be. He's sort of like, well, you know, we made this movie. You might like it. We don't know <laughs> if it's if it's going to be great, but it's got all sorts of craziness in it. And um, it's, it's, it's set in a sort of made-up video game, isn't it? And he's like a background is. character in the game who has to become the hero. 
Is that right? I, th- I think so. And that's the funny thing about it as well, because when he they were talking about it, everyone's like, what, what exactly is this movie? Because um, you don't easily realize from the trailer. Um, but it, that is essentially, I think, the crux of it. And it's and one of the things as we've come to know from him is that he immediately starts taking the Mickey about Disney <laughs> and the fact that everything else is a franchise, but this isn't. This is an original film. He's playing the main main person guy who is trying to just live his normal life in the midst of all the craziness that happens in a video game, like people being shot and thrown out of windows and all that kind of stuff. And then he realizes that he's in the video game and then decides to actually become one of the heroes. So change character essentially. Um, And I don't play video games, but this looks cool essentially for anybody really. And whether or not I think you need to understand much about how, how generally like video games work, I don't know, but it's, it looks very cool, well shot, and I'm sure it's got a lot of the typical Ryan Reynolds e charm to it. So yeah, I, I'm I like my action comedy. So yeah, I can't wait. Well, as you know, I'm very excited about Fast and Furious Nine, but since that's not out until 2021, I will instead, in a complete shift of gears, say mm-hmm. that I'm looking forward to the new Pixar film Soul. You know, Pixar tell a fantastic story, don't they? They don't they they know how to tug on your heartstrings. They know uh, how to uh, add humour to what is a very human story. Uh, they are great at exploring kind of quite existential issues, while also having great aesthetics and looking beautiful. And Soul um, is uh, about a, uh, uh, a a jazz performer who um, gets to travel uh, underneath. Uh, New York City to the land where souls are kind of are made and come about and get their personalities. And so obviously there's a little bit of a, a, a play there on soul, uh, the, the human soul and also soul music, I, I guess. Um, there's a, uh, the, the, the lead characters played by Jamie Foxx. But there's a, you know, as, as always, there's some great, uh, great actors in there uh, all the way through Tina Fey, Angela Bassett. Um, and uh, it's uh, directed by um, the by the uh, by Pete Doctor, who directed Inside Out and Up. So we can accept the same, expect the same. But, I mean, uh, he's the ideas uh, guy, isn't he? For Pixar? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Inside Out is such a brilliant film because it you know, takes this sort of idea of all these emotions in the brain and but actually makes this sort of really coherent world for them you know everything in that movie works logically you can sort of break it down to sort of a really sort of minute level and it still works yeah 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 absolutely um so yeah so i'm looking forward to that um and uh that will be probably one of the first animations i've been to see it the on the big screen for a very long time so many other things we could talk about i mean I think Candyman looks really cool as well um this is directed by nia da costa who's going to be directing captain marvel 2 and it's produced by jordan oh, peele of course who did get out and up um so sort of picking up the story sort of 30 years later there's an artist played by yaya abdul mateen second who uh, of course was a very important character in watchmen he's sort of an artist who discovers the Candyman legend and finds you know i think has a few more too many close encounters with bees mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is the way. And, and then of course there's dune uh, we talked about dune loads in the previous episode but that does look amazing. So uh, a trailer for the new Dune leaked online this week, just ahead of us recording this. The It's officially released in the UK on the 9th of September um, at 5pm. Uh, but yeah, it looks very exciting. Um, did you have a chance to see that, the leak? 
I didn't see the leak, but I have seen a lot of photos that were in Empire magazine this week, and it looks fantastic. I mean, they, they filmed in uh, in Jordan, which is where they filmed a lot of the Rise of Skywalker. Huge sort of real desert vistas. Yeah, sign me up. We'll leave it there for 2020 movies. Uh, we'll be back in a sec with our rewind section where we're looking back at a classic episode of The X-Files. Hello and welcome to part two of Robbie of the Robots Waiting, our rewind section. And we're very happy to welcome uh, Paul Terry. He's the co-author of Fringe, September's Notebook, uh, Lost Encyclopedia, the official making of Big Trouble in Little China. And he's also co-authoring Marvel Studios' The First Ten Years with Tara Bennett. Hi, Paul. Hey. Hi, Paul. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hey, welcome. I should also mention that you are the author of The X-Files, The Official Archives, which is incredibly relevant to uh, this week's Rewind episode of The X-Files Squeeze. But we'll get onto that later. First of all, what have you been enjoying uh, in the sci-fi world lately? Honestly, I think the thing that's blown me away the most in, in quite a while is Lovecraft Country. I oh, yeah. Think it's, uh, yeah. It's just one of those shows that I guess, you know, from... From I would say front to back, top to bottom, you know, it came fully formed. You know, the, as soon as it came on the screen in the pilot, everything—the the period setting, the characterizations—it um, just it really it really grabbed me. And um, I think that it's one of those shows where there were great performances throughout, but the anchor characters that Jonathan Majors plays and Journey Smollett plays just—I don't know—they just had me from the start. And as it's gone on, it's become even more compelling, and uh, just. A really, a really amazing example of something that can, you know, can educate, can be historical, obviously incredibly important right now, but also have be so contemporary. You know, I love all the contemporary flourishes that are, are, are inside it, and to twist and turn through the many subgenres that horror and fantasy and sci-fi can offer as it goes through an episode, and then as each episode has gone along, is is kind. Of, it kind of feels like I'm watching an amazing horror show that is just spinning plates all the time on tentacles like sixty-seven thousand, <laughs> and and they're not dropping and you're going misha green amazing job so that's my that's my number one watch at the moment now paul you're based out in la um which means you have access to american tv is there anything you've seen that hasn't made it over here yet raised by wolves oh we haven't got it yet here yeah it's a, it's a curious one it's so uh, they've they've put the first episode on youtube uh from hbo max so that everybody can see it i don't want to give too much away it's it's uh Ridley Scott's involved, of course. Um, Aaron Guzikowski. I'm a big fan of uh, Prisoners, the Hugh Jackman movie, which is you know incredibly tense and dramatic for the entire duration of the film. <laughs> You're just kind of feeling it the whole time. So he's a writer. I think he does um, nuance of characterization really, really well and really compelling. Um, I would say the pilot has this. It's a for me, it's a weird collision of a lot of familiar things about that we all love about science fiction. And I'm curious to see where it goes. But at, at the same time, you sort of go, I feel like I've seen a lot of these things presented, not just through Ridley's uh, eyes, to be honest, a lot of different eras of science fiction. There's kind of, mm. there's almost, there's a, um, there's a Martian-esque quality to, to certain things. There is almost an interstellar quality to certain of the production design components. But there's even, <laughs> there's even a kind of, it seems very intentional throwback to you know 1950s science fiction in a lot of the uh, production design the costume designs so it's um yeah kind of a giddy visual um cocktail of uh, <laughs> familiar science fiction things but does have a, an interesting story about 
you know, um, AI and its uh, uh, raising of, uh, of humanity and seeing where that kind of, uh, you know, familiar component of science fiction, but what this story will do with it. And a familiar component of Ridley Scott as well. Indeed. I mean, yeah. AI and science fiction, he's kind of been there before. And <laughs> to be honest, there's, there's some sequences in it that I think fit, will feel to especially really hardened Ridley Scott fans who just flock to everything that he does. I think definitely in the... Um, in his uh, alien verse areas he's, he's treaded. Um, I'd say especially some of the, co- the covenant production design, the covenant vibe for me, there were some things that I felt I'd seen that quite recently, but you know, that's not a, not a criticism necessarily. It's just an observation that that kind of feels where it's grounded. Now it's time for rewind. We're going to go back in time to the mid nineties for the X files. Um, and a very early episode squeeze the one with Eugene Toomes, the guy who was all stretchy, ate people's livers, made a nest out of newspaper and stuff. Um, (laughs) now, Watching this again, I was surprised how early it was in the X-Files run. I think it was the third episode broadcast, but it really feels like a show that's already found its feet. Totally. Um, no, I completely agree. I think it's, uh, it's, it, was a, it was a fascinating one to figure out in terms of, um, uh, with the book, that this was the first human mutant case. You know, the show had, the show had launched, and you're absolutely right, Rich, that especially with the rewatch, although I'd seen the show many times, it does really strike you that after a, a very UFO alien conspiracy strangeness that the, the show launched on to pivot towards something so utterly bizarre and, and human based in um, as much as he as human as he is as a mutant in Eugene Toomes. Yeah. Um, it's still terrifying though. As you say, it's uh, it's nearly 30 years on and it's, it still has a lot of power and it, it's, I find it interesting watching those kind of episodes of the X-Files now, because I think, it did such a great job of being adult and being mature and grown up in its tone as well, without necessarily relying on a ton of gore or a ton of, you know, um, I, I'm not a prude at all when it comes to bad language or <laughs> expletive language, but it's interesting that a show can pull off that tone without those components. Absolutely. We don't actually see very much in this episode. You know, I, I think I'd imagined that you kept seeing Eugene Toomes stretching, like in uh, almost like American Werewolf in London. But you don't. You get these hints that he can do this thing, and you see the fingerprints which are elongated, but it's, it's all in your mind. Even when he attacks somebody, it kind of goes to slow-mo, and it kind of happens a little bit off-screen. There's a suggestion of violence rather than uh, actually. Yeah. But on, on that note about, about Toomes' ability, what's interesting, I think, as well, is that quite early in the episode, it switches to his perspective. I mean, there's no ambiguity about what they're investigating there. Very early on, Mulder makes his, uh, you know, his suggestion about what it is. And he's right, and we see straight away. It almost—it's not quite, but you know what a Columbo fan, fan I am. It almost becomes quite early on. You see, from the villain's point of view, what he's doing, and it becomes a little bit of a game of cat and mouse between between Mulder, who knows what what the deal is, uh, yeah. and trying to prove it. You know, there's, there's there's kind of no ambiguity. It's more how to catch him than what the problem is. I think it's a great episode of TV, not just the X Files, and the fact that it's so early on in the run is amazing really and the chemistry between Mulder and Scully is just there already you know and and feels so natural the way that they've done a story which is essentially that you know all trope of you know someone being stalked by a killer with them at the window and everything they just do it brilliantly because of the way that they can sort of infer what's happening without having to show it so I think in a nutshell, this kind of defines why the X-Files became a hit because it's kind of stealth sci-fi. You know, this is like a cop <laughs> police procedural, you know, where 
uh, it's, it's almost like a Sherlock mystery where you've got people who are being killed in a sort of locked room. How did the killer get in and out? Um, and they solve it. And this kind of the science fiction stuff is almost incidental. The way that Game of Thrones started off as this epic sort of historical drama, and then they kind of snuck in the dragons. This does the same thing. It, it's it's like the whole moonlighting thing, but the killers in this are aliens, they're monsters. And, and it almost sort of allowed people who'd never have been caught dead watching Star Trek to watch a sci-fi show. I think my dad's a good example of that because it's the only sci-fi show that I can ever remember him watching. And he would never, <laughs> and he would never normally let us watch much TV, especially post-Watershed. But I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people who grew up in our um, in our generation who have the same sort of feeling that now you know back back in those days the reason I think he let me watch it because he thought I would somehow become Scully in a forensic biologist <laughs> <laughs> that was his main that was his main reason apparently but it was sci-fi but he was watching it happily not really thinking about that fact on that note can we talk about what a badass Scully is she's a, she's amazing and right in there there's there's a moment early on where they find Toombs's nest and she just tucks her gun into a belt and goes right and she just gets in there straight ahead of her, of, of Mulder she's uh, and even at the end where they they fight him and, and they bring him down together there's definitely a sense that if Mulder hadn't shown up I fully believe that Scully would have taken him down anyway she punches him in the face as soon as yeah. as soon as Toom invades her uh, hotel room so I think uh, you know she's actually quite you know, quite two-fisted in that in, in this episode, isn't she? You know, she, she kind of really goes mm. for it. I think this episode for me as well, it has such a great history to the characters as well. I love the fact that, as you say, it's pretty remarkable three episodes in, but we get to meet someone from the past, you know, the, the Tom Colton character who is the, you know, very much the disruptor in, uh, in <laughs> against Mulder's out there ideals. But you get, it's almost like Scully's past brings something else to the show, um, mm. which again is a great, dynamic shift between them as relatively new partners in investigating this stuff so i loved all that and i really love the fact that you get with the frank briggs character the the older investigator it almost like having a character like him amplifies the historical component to the tombs legacy because he's the guy going yeah i dedicated my entire life trying to catch this guy no one would believe me and it just if you if you take away his character and you take away the Colton character, it, it's a much less successful episode, I think, in terms of it being a really, the the legacy of Tombs being so long and so terrifying. Right. I mean, the older cop's almost like uh, the sort of vision of what Mulder could become, isn't it? You know, the, the guy who's had this obsession yeah. who no one's believed, you know, you're almost like looking in a mirror. Totally, totally. But what's so great about the show, not going getting off squeeze, but I think the show could always bob and weave really successfully as to who was vulnerable in the episode. And I loved how there are definitely episodes where Scully's vulnerability comes to the surface and Mulder's too. So they're always depending on uh, who ends up being either, you know, captured by somebody or just in great peril, the sort of their, their, as you say, the, the very fully formed relationship they already have and just this unspoken special quality is the, the, the through line to the whole show. Yeah. And I love the way, so one of the moments when they find the nest, how you get to see that vulnerability of Mulder, where he for once freaks out because he gets bile on his finger and he's like, I don't know how to look cool and get rid of this. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real moment. But it was brilliant because it, again, it sort of reinforces the humanity that Mulder has. And at the same time, the vulnerability. And Dana's the one just looking at him like, all right. (laughs) 
It's just and a it, bit of bile. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and it's that pure kind of moulder exemplifies the whole, you know, Occam's razor of everything. Like you said, Dave, you know, the, the locked box, how did this happen? Well, someone must be able to be stretchy and, you know, come down a, a chimney and kill somebody and then leave again. <laughs> so, so clearly that's the answer. And as you say, it, it, the show's so funny that sometimes it, it allows us, especially with the cold opens, um, and I'd say more so with the Monster of the Week episodes than a lot of the Myth Arc episodes, that it does give the audience the secret. It does say, here you go, you're going to see what's really going on. Can they figure it out? Or can, or can most of the time, can Scully get there? Could you figure out all of the <laughs> which is Which is a great, a great um, twist on a procedural format as well. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You, that that thing about how um, the solution to the the locked room mystery is the uh, is that that kind of supernatural or mutant solution. It reminds me of um, Dirk Gently, Holistic Detective Agency. I don't know whether you're familiar with the original mm-hmm. book, but in that the um, the the solution is time travel. He pieces together all the things that are going on, and the way he solves the crime is he goes out and asks a child, "Look, this is what's happened. How could that have happened?" And the child goes, "Well, he must have had a bloody time machine." And that's the solution. And I, it sort of feels like the X-Files, that's kind of what happened. Got all the bits. What, what's the obvious solution? Oh, right, yeah, obviously the man can make himself squeeze through a vent. <laughs> I, mean, I kind of think of this as the quintessential X-Files Monster of the Week episode, you know, where it, it does stand alone. Um, but it, it was obviously considered such a big deal and so important that they did make a sequel out of it. Towards the end of season one, you had Tombs. Do you think they should have gone back or, or do you think they should have left him as he was, sort of locked up as this sort of weird guy who had a little taste for a liver? I can, I can still remember, you know, watching the, this show on the BBC and, of course, in a pre-internet age, you're looking at the, the Radio Times or whatever it is to see what's coming up and getting a sense that there was this sequel episode uh, with this character. I remember being so excited to see it, and I don't think it disappointed at all. I think, it, if anything, it kind of doubled down on the Mulder. You're just being a bit crazy now. You're not, you're not, you're not thinking rationally because the poor guy, you know, he, <laughs> he tries to warn everyone in the most clear, concise way. Here's all the evidence, and they've got all the, they've got all the evidence from the nest. And, you know, he goes and, you know, lives with the, that lovely couple who want to look after him and then still wreaks havoc. My favourite scenes in the sequel episode, not diverging from Squeeze, but it's just when Mulder's tailing him and occasionally going, all right, mate, how you doing? And just constantly catching the corner of his peripheral vision and Tomb just going for crying out loud, like, stop it. And Mulder just being the persistent guy that he is and in a very sort of comedic way. But it's, um, I think they knew how that character landed with the the audience and it i think it worked really great i think people forget how big the x-files was i mean putting it in british terms this is a show that moved from bbc2 to bbc1 oh my you know, god which, yeah. which doesn't happen that often no. um, <laughs> but it was such a phenomenon wasn't it it, it was, was incredible yeah yeah it caught the zeitgeist completely there was um there was the song Mulder and scully uh which was at the height of uh brit pop in the in the 90s yeah. everything seemed to be labeled x for a while there was you know gillian anderson was it on the cover of one. the last mags i remember watching it on top of the pops mark snow was performing it am i wrong oh, the theme tune, yeah the theme tune, it hit number one i mean that is unheard of surely i mean yeah i don't i don't remember any of the show doing that yeah, and I think I think uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say that even now, oh, very good. You know, in, in, in tw- <laughs> oh, totally, I, I wish I'd planned that. Uh, <laughs> even in 2020, I think that a lot of writers' rooms and TV shows that are trying to come up with the perfect duo to complement each other, to complement the story, I, I would imagine that a lot of whiteboards in writers' rooms have, you know, at least 
how do we get it to be a little bit like Mulder and Scully? And I don't even mean the same personalities. I just mean that absolutely, you know, it is pun intended, the X factor of, of the show is, it is a combination of things, right? You know, it's the, it's the writing, it's the directing, it's, it's David and Gillian's choices uh, in bringing those characters to life. It's that, that wonderful collection of all those bits of creativity results in the way those characters come across on the screen. And that is hard to pin down, but I would imagine a lot of writers probably do study that and figure, <laughs> figure out how do we get a duo as compelling. And the fact that, like you'd mentioned before, Rich, you don't have them swearing or having much angst, which I think often happens maybe more so these days that, you know, they have to build some sexual tension or build some um, flaws in their characters or, or something. They can't just have a conversation. That's something I miss actually. Watching I agree. It kind of brought I agree it a lot. Back I, to me. I agree a lot. I think that a lot of, um, you know, there's, there, there is a ton of amazing TV on and has been the past decade for sure. But at the same time, a lot of pilots or shows that I've seen where they get into two things, they get into very angry space, like you say, or the opposite of that. It's almost like a competition to see who can mumble the most and who can be the <laughs> most dour. And you, and you just, I always think about the editors in the edit bay going, do, do we, ha- is this going to change the dynamic of the conversation? Going to, going to get a little bit more exciting or is it 50 minutes of just speaking very sternly and quietly and whisper core it's uh come on let's just let's change it up a little bit but um yeah it's a a rare example of i think of a ton of things that happen to work uh, all at the same time paul um i think it's fair to say that you're a bit of a fan of the x-files um and you've written the x-files the official archives with a nice subheading cryptids biological anomalies and parapsychic phenomena and it's published on september the 15th by abrams it looks like a real labor of love it's got so much content um sort of going back through the, the sort of history of the x-files how did you put it all together i mean looking at squeeze you've got case files you've got pictures of tombs you've got transcripts of stuff i'm assuming that chris carter and everybody wasn't just collecting all this stuff at the time thinking one day paul terry is going to write a book (laughs) (laughs) um well it's i would say it's probably the probably the craziest project in terms of book project that i've been involved with today just just because it was kind of a a strange series of events that even led to existing uh yes you're correct lifelong fans i'm sure has come across very loudly very clearly on this show of the x-files um it was actually when season 10 was announced the as a lot of X-Files fans around the world uh, rejoiced that there was going to be more episodes. And I pitched it to Fox. I pitched the idea as soon as pretty much a week after it was announced and said to a contact there I had, I said, "Um, the book I think that X-Files fans would really love is the X-Files. And uh, he said, but what about the X-Files? I said, no, the X-Files, the actual X-Files, the actual field reports. And and he was on board and loved it and but it was a case of well how do we do that and then we started discussing things about well the fox archives have i would imagine tons of the paper props all filed away in you know raiders of the lost ark style (laughs) aircraft (laughs) hangar warehouse which they did but um but it took a while to get there because you know the world of publishing is a funny place and there were a couple of publishers that um sort of undenied about being interested in doing it for a while, which was, you know, it can be a little frustrating when you've got an idea in your head and you just really believe in it and you want to land it. Um, but it was exactly the right thing to happen because Abrams, uh, when I, I signed on to do the book at the end of 2017, uh, absolutely the right place to, uh, to have made this book because 
um, Eric Clopper, my editor, is a huge X-Files fan, gigantic X-Files fan. So you already know that you've got someone who's fighting for the, the authenticity of an in-world book. And Paul Keppel and Alex Bruce from Headcase Design, who were the designers of this book, as you can see, just the, the level of attention to detail of realism in this book is astounding and has blown me away in terms of I always wanted to achieve that look, but you never know what's going to happen when it comes to designing a book. So have to give them a huge shout out for doing just an astounding job with um, the commitment to it. I mean, we had, we had conversations about which era is this with this file have been written 1993, 1997. So we started talking about what fonts would have been used. Oh, uh, yeah. and, and, uh, I mean, I am the biggest nerd when it comes to font conversation. <laughs> I, will, I will happily sit there and while away the hours talking about fonts. So as soon as, as soon as uh, the head case boys were talking in these terms, and, uh, and Eric and Abrams were on board with that, that level of detail. I knew this was a safe space to, to create this kind of book. But, um, but no, you're right. It, it, essentially, what it came down to was um, I knew that although I'd rewatched the show many times, it would require a rewatch in a completely new way because I do take any in-world project that I've been involved with really seriously because I think you have to never break that rule. So I rewatched the entire show as you do. <laughs> and basically through the lens of, okay, what items would actually be in a field report? What things mm. could have been photographed? What uh, props on screen were part of a case file? If it was, you know, the acetates they put up on screen from an X-ray, or as you say, it's um, a piece of evidence by the, uh, the gooey, the bile hive of, of tombs. And that was, that created a roadmap of uh, a wish list to um to the fox archives team who were incredible throughout this whole process and saying does this stuff exist and the short answer was it might but the boxes haven't been opened for some of them for over 20 years so it became this very much detective story of going to the warehouses pulling out boxes and then spending a long time <laughs> going through literally uh, page leaf by page leaf because a lot of this stuff had all stuck together and compressed over time from the folders. So it wasn't a simple case of, oh, this box has season four, episode two, and everything's completely organized and, and, and fine. A lot of it was cobbled together in different, in different boxes. But as a fan, as you can imagine it, that is, that's the dream, right? Well, I think that it's brilliantly done. And you've actually... You've actually, I think, made many X-Files fan dreams come true because you're turning the reader into the X-Files agent and who didn't want to be <laughs> Mordoskoli at some point. So you've managed to make all those dreams come true. And the, and it's so interesting. You might think, okay, reading it like a report as a file might you know, not be as, as fun, but it's really fascinating to see it from that perspective. Absolutely. Um I, uh, you get a little thrill having just seen an episode and then you go to the chapter about it in your book and you see the little p newspaper clippings and things in there. And, and, and I still get they a little bit of, telly. They're just on telly. <laughs> I totally get a little, and you can just read, read the little report that you just saw in someone's hand and I, you get a little buzz out of that. Right. That honestly, uh, you guys, if I could just have those as two pull quotes and I'll just put them everywhere. <laughs> that's the reviews of the book. Thank you so much. Um, no, honestly, that's, that's all, uh, that's all anyone ever wants who wants to make an in-world book that is authentic to the fans. I, I just want, you know, the amazing cast and crew of the show, 
top down from Chris Carter to Gillian Anderson, David Duchovny, and everybody, all the writers, the producers, anyone involved with creating this world, because it's such a rich, fascinating world. And then the fans, the fans who are just so dedicated to this show, there is a pressure you feel when you take on a project like this, but you you kind of, your true north is just your own fandom and that you know that mm-hmm. you want to do right by your own fandom as well as the, the rest of the fans. But that was a challenge, of course, as well, because when you're hearing Scully doing a voiceover where she's doing a draft of the report or Mulder and just listening to how they communicate with Skinner and all these kind of little little nuances in their in their vocal patterns, you really want to kind of capture that with the, with the field reports. But what I really wanted to do to make it super authentic is, of course, fans who are listening to this who might think, oh, did you think about this? Don't worry, I did, is that the whole X-Files office is torched. (laughs) It's a huge (laughs) act of arson right before the Fight the Future movie. And so I already knew this when I pitched it and thought, we'll figure that out if someone wants to make this book. But um, it became this really great challenge of, okay, case by case, how would this, this copy or this version of the field report even exist physically anymore to be able to be inside this archive and actually I, I would definitely say that anything that's not in the reports or anything that's redacted I want everyone to know that I obsessed over every detail like that so if there are redactions for things maybe there's a reason for that who mm. who did the redactions maybe think about that while you're studying the report there's all these kind of little kernels of things that nothing is nothing is an accident was there anything that you found that really excited you you know where you just had that absolute rush of i guess geekery thank goodness abram's book said yes please to this book once i knew that someone wanted to make it uh wanted to you know publish this thing publish the idea that's the first big rush you get because you know that someone believes in the concept and of course chris carter saying yes to it is an is another moment the archives i guess were the most special because although i had a wish list of stuff that was a paper prop in a show in the show i didn't know whether that existed i didn't know right. whether it had been thrown out had it been sold so it was things like finding the the acetates were really special. There's an acetate from um, from uh, the uh, the shapes episode that you can hold up and hold in your hand and know we can scan that. But also with the rewatch, you know, you are when you're doing an in world book, you're watching a show as I say through a completely different lens. And so me as a fan, having the subtitles on the whole time and looking for a little little fragments of details that could flesh out each case file even more. I was thinking about what you must have done for the book. You must have gone through, if you suddenly find this huge warehouse at Fox with thousands of pieces of props and and acetates and reports, how do you pick from that when you know that you've got a finite number of cases you're going to go through? It's almost harder, I would think, as a fan to go, oh, just disregard those. That's a really great question um, because that before I got to the warehouse, what really helped doing the full rewatch was actually putting things into categories. They would be categorized on this huge Word document of, of Alien slash The Syndicate, you know, something that was to do with the conspiracy. And then there would be things like, it's a creature, it's a standalone episode, or it's a very personal case file for Mold or very personal case file for Scully, whatever it was. And then when I started, you know, getting the old highlighter pen out of different colours and you start looking at how all those colours correlate, you go, that's what struck me was, okay, terrestrial biological anomalies as a, as a, a way of sort of summarising what this first book is, was the right way to come out the gate with it because it was of course a lot of the favorite monster of the week episodes but they all Mm. they all fit together really nicely because even the parapsychic stuff is essentially 
you know, a human who has some kind of amazing power mentally, which you could attribute to a medical adjustment, like the push yeah. episode. So when you, when I saw that all those colors laid out, it became very clear that th- when hunting through the archives, it had to be, yeah, the cryptids, biological anomalies, and anything that was parapsychic and find a good, you know, 50 case files that would fit that, uh, those categories. The X-Files, the official archives, is published by Abrams Books on September the 15th. Now it's time to close the X-Files, though. For now, uh, we'll be back in a sec, and we'll be doing a news roundup. Welcome to part three, our news roundup. Our next podcast will be out around Wednesday, 23rd of September, when we'll be celebrating the fact that the whole of Battlestar Galactica has just landed on BBC iPlayer by rewatching a classic episode. That's 33, the worst case of sleep deprivation ever committed to screen. Don't forget, you can listen to our special Tenet episode or any of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcast. And if you have anything you'd like to say about 33 or Battlestar Galactica, or if you want to get in touch about anything else sci-fi related, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at RobbieSciFi. And while you're at it, why not subscribe on Apple or wherever else you get your podcasts? Okay, news roundup. Going to start with the news that The Batman, the latest trip to Gotham City, has closed down production because uh, Robert Pattinson, the new Bruce Wayne, has apparently got coronavirus. Now, we weren't sure this was going to be the film to have it, but this was kind of inevitable, wasn't it? And I think this is something we're going to have to get used to, that production is going to be starting and stopping, and this is just going to be the story of the next few months, I think. Yeah, plus the fact that I think they're just trying to prove that Batman is human. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah it's 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 inevitable the the, you know the um the the virus hasn't gone away um despite lockdown lifting in some areas and as much as we want the world to return to normal um the production of a film is incredibly collaborative it's incredibly busy it's incredibly tightly contained people forget of course many many hundreds or depending on the size of the size of the film and departments involvement you know maybe even potentially thousands in the various offices and things that uh, peripheral businesses that are involved in making a film um I'm not surprised that some somebody on a big budget uh, film uh, tested positive for for coronavirus. The thing with movies like this, though, it's not like people can work from home, and also when it's when it's your star, it's very difficult to work around it. I know when Harrison Ford hurt his leg on The Force Awakens, they did re, you know shuffle production around a little bit and reshot a few things, but. Batman in Batman is kind of important. Well, I'm available, if they, I'm available if they need someone to play Batman. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> just, just <put> it- <laughs> That's what they need an open call right now. I hope, it, um, I hope what it really does, though, is just, you know, it's already there in many respects, but the communication between the studios, you kind of hope that just as an industry that there is even more communication about learning from things. We tried this out, this didn't work, and da-da-da. Um, I know there's a lot of success happening in, in other productions and, as you say, other things happening where it's, it's, it's still the invisible enemy, right? It's not something we can completely understand. Yeah. It's still, I mean, it's incredibly early days, isn't it, as you say? It's, it's, this is the 2020 is the strangest year and I would say even for any big productions to have a crack at it with safe quarantine things is, is pretty, pretty brave and, uh, you know, I, I get it. I get why they're trying to do it, but it's... Um, yeah, it's a very difficult time. David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, who were the showrunners on Game of Thrones, obviously they've been uh, twiddling their thumbs a little bit since uh, Westeros uh, closed its doors. They were going to make a Star Wars movie. Now they're not making a Star Wars movie, but they are making a sci-fi thing for Netflix. They're adapting Six in Lou's three-body problem. Now, this is seriously hard sci-fi from what I understand. Yeah, it's uh, it's an incredibly um, 
dense and complex uh, novel, the uh, the three body problem. Um, it's also uh, very heavily steeped in uh, in Chinese culture and the nuance that comes from from that. The website Jezebel was kind of scathing about this um, because, of course, uh, a while uh, Game of Thrones was huge for a long time. Um, it deviated from from the the books a little bit, and particularly at the end when it, the final season and so on was not critically well well acclaimed. Um, and so uh, there's been a little bit of a, a backlash against uh, against Weiss and Benioff um, creating this. I mean, I'm I'm excited to see it. I, I'm excited to see what what they'll what they'll do. It is an incredibly dense book uh, and a multi award winning book. It's got a lot of a lot of fans. But yeah, the but 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 critics haven't been kind online to the idea uh, of such an ambitious project being taken on by by these guys. Um, um, however, I do like the idea of a hard science um, story. I like the idea of, uh, of of science fiction novels being adapted for the um, for the screen. Um, and I, I'm, you know, and, and we went through a little bit of a period where we were a bit starved for um, for, for space science fiction. Earlier in the century, we had um, Battlestar Galactica, and then and then you know things were for quiet for a little while. We have we've got the Expanse at the moment, but but good solid outer space science fiction has been in kind of short supply. So um, so I'm looking forward to it. Staying in outer space, uh, Ridley Scott, having gone back to Alien with Prometheus and Alien Covenant, says he's still thinking of going back again. Um, it won't necessarily be a continuation of Prometheus and Alien Covenant. I don't know if I'm the only one, but I'm kind of like, maybe leave Alien alone. Um, <laughs> there hasn't been a truly great Alien movie since Aliens. There hasn't been a film that over a long time that's added to the mythology, I don't think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I feel like Aliens is in a class of its own. I, I would stick my neck out as a big nerd and say that I have thought that for many years. Um, that's not in any way supposed to be taken as, a, as disparaging of Alien, but I think that Aliens, for me, in terms of what it does as a story, the characters, everything about it is just an extraordinary piece of filmmaking and storytelling. And I agree with you, Rich. Nothing's really come after that, including uh, the newer Ridley Scott ones that have really um, you know, give me that feeling, give them the hairs on the back of my neck. Ooh, this, the Xenomorph legacy really has expanded. And I don't know, I just, I love the, I love, I've always loved the mystery of villains. I think, you know, when you get your antagonist right and he's really mysterious, then you've got a cracking, you know, rich story to tell. And I'm sure we can all remember the first time you get a sense that, wait, these eggs are coming from an alien queen and, <laughs> and they're and they're so intelligent as a as an organism that we see in aliens the way they the way the, the hive mind works and everything it's just that was enough for me i didn't need to find out anything more about the, <laughs> about the about anything to be honest nothing at all that's it aliens could should have just been it so that's uh that's my aliens fan talking in the star wars universe uh the Mandalorian has a release date. It's out at the end of October, which is great news. But also, John Biega has been uh, talking. He did an interview with GQ, uh, where he's quite vocal. I mean, surprisingly vocal, I think, for someone who's been in a, a big franchise movie so recently. And he was very critical that his character and Kelly Marie Tran's characters were very much underused in, in as the franchise went on. I mean, obviously, he was set up in the first movie as the star. He was the one who had the lightsaber in the trailers. And then it really did feel like they've sort of run out of ideas for things for him to do. And certainly Kelly Marie Tran in the rise of Skywalker, she was like, she was barely there. And I think it's really interesting that these points are being raised because I think he's really got a point there. Yeah, absolutely. His character is massively underserved by the, um, by the, by the final film. And, uh, but it is great that he's, 
so vocal about it and, and you know putting his career on the line and, and and obviously taking part in the black lives matter protests in in, in london uh, over the summer but speaking openly about his experience in star wars to, to gq it, it, it's fantastic you know hollywood is an environment where where maybe a young actor doesn't want to speak out about about the, the creative decisions or about the uh, the politics of, of of what's happened for fear of their own career so um, I, you know, I, I think we've, we've got to rally around and support, support him taking, you know, being vocal about what's, what his experience is, right? Everyone loves a bit of Spider-Man. Sony really likes the Spider-Verse. Uh, they're expanding it. They're expanding it into TV. They've already done Venom and they've got Morbius coming up on the big screen. But it looks like they are taking Silk to TV. I'm quite quite keen to see that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I you know, I, I love Spider-Man. It's one of my favourite superheroes. And, and you can just see Sony uh, mining that seam for all the, uh, the the characters that they're, they're allowed to do stuff and stuff with. But, you know, <laughs> this, but, but Into the Spider-Verse was, was fantastic. Um, I actually really enjoyed Venom. I mean, it felt like a 90s B-movie, but still, I quite enjoyed it for what it was. And I'm quite looking forward to the the carnage one that they're doing uh, that they're doing after. So, um, uh, yeah, Silk on the uh, on the small screen. Why not? Well, I mean, Silk is um, about Lauren Moon, who has very similar powers to Spider-Man. Um, and Christopher, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, who are very heavily involved in Into the Spider-Verse, uh, are involved in this. And that's a good sign because they make good stuff. Um, they do. You know, yeah, the, those Lego movies. I'm, I'm, I'm there for those Lego yeah. movies any day of the week. <laughs> if you want to put Richard Iowardi as a character who's an ice cream cone, I am going to turn up to your movie and watch <laughs> it back to back several times. Um, hey, I, I still really loved, uh, and if I watched it now, would probably have lots of warm feels about it. The, uh, the seventies Spider-Man TV series, the Nicholas Hammond one, there was such a charm about it, you know, special effects aside. I think a lot of those, a lot of the series in that era and Coltrack, the night stalk and stuff like that, they just have such a great vibe. Just as a, an anecdote, I saw, um, Hammond played Spider-Man on the big screen because in the UK they released the first one as a uh, as a movie. And on The Witcher, the showrunner of the series, Lauren S. Histrich, has actually admitted that they may have made a little mistake uh, by not explaining <laughs> the varying timelines on the series. And that's really refreshing that it's come out and said it, but my God, I wish they'd explained what was going on when I was watching it. <laughs> oh, just a caption on the screen would have helped, wouldn't it? I, it's, a, it's a shame. So I, really, I have to confess, I really like The Witcher. And as we've said before on this show, I I just really like I just I just really like kind of hokey high fantasy. So I, I and I and I you know a fan of the Witcher games as well. So I was kind of really made to like it. But um, yeah, you can play around with audience expectations about timelines as a narrative device. We've just been talking about you know Christopher Nolan with Tenet in the cinema about things that he's done in, in um, with, with time and all the way back to Memento and so on. But you have to be clever about it, and you have to. There are certain expectations that that, that you have and. And the way that the Witcher TV show was cut did not lead you to appreciate that things were happening out, out of sequence. It was just very confusing, which is obviously not, not the intention. Well, I think that's the, the point, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, showrunners can be very clever. They have to be. But they forget that the average audience viewer is not as invested or as informed about the show that they are making. And so you can lose people that way and it's good that they've recognized that that's a mistake um but the fact that there is a solution which is just going back onto netflix and adding the captions <laughs> will they will they do it i don't know well, with the witcher i'm not going to complain too much because it was a chance to uh write features about 
the Witcher timeline explains. So for, it was a gift for journalists. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the more incomprehensible TV, the better. So you're all for people talking in mass. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Thank you, Paul, whose book, uh, The X-Files, The Official Archives, is out on the 15th of September. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been really Thank fun. You. It's Thanks awesome. Brilliant. Thank you very much. We'll be back around Wednesday, 23rd September, talking Battlestar Galactica and loads more. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, trust no one. <laughs>